Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are back, the both of us. Thanks to Jack for uh, holding down the, the poetry fort for the last episode. Excited to be back because even before that, we had our special episode on uh, on the National Book Awards and everything. So it's been a little while since we've had our regular format. So it's also very exciting, I think, to be back to to the smooth sailing, uh, comforting, familiar <laughs> seas of reading a poem and talking about the poem and reading the poem again. That's all anybody wants, you know. Yeah, we try to do a little fancy this, a little schmazaroo. But, Ooh, schmazaroo. Uh, schmazaroo. Stick Look around for my recommendation, which will include some <laughs> words that are not words for reasons that will become apparent. But I like schmazaroo. Yeah, I, you know, had never said it before this moment, but it felt good. It's got some real uh, roll doll vibes. <laughs> yeah, it does. This it is does. my schmazaroo stick. <laughs> That's what I use to stir the schnozzle dins. <laughs> In well, you're getting pretty close to this. <laughs> you're inching toward the slivy toves there, I think. Mm, uh, we've never done any nonsense poetry on here. That's true. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. Mm. All right. Little Lewis Carroll. Yeah. Exploration. It could be done and we will do it. It's been decided, but do we won't think, do it. Do, do you oh. think that he like went up to his friends and he was like, I'm Lindringer Creswizzle. <laughs> <laughs> and just said different nonsense words and then watched their faces. And it was like, yeah, but ah, just Jabberwocky. Like a... <laughs> that one really hit the <laughs> face well. The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you can call me Mr. Rumtificus. <laughs> nope, that didn't get anywhere. All right. Well, I'm going to retire that one. I'll think of something better tomorrow. <laughs> I would definitely listen to a deep dive of 
his writing process for sure. That is a, a teaser for a yet to be recorded episode. <laughs> it is not today's episode. Um, today we're discussing a wonderful poem, as always, by the uh, poet Seema Yasmin. The poem is called If God is a Virus. Um, it's from her debut collection, also called If God is a Virus. For those who do the New York Times crossword, this is a moment when you can relearn the word eponym, which is often used in a hint, and I always forget what it is, but the eponymous poem, if God is a virus. Anyway. I feel um, smarter already. That's going to be very <laughs> handy. See, I've been, I'm purely slumming it with the spelling bee these days. I have really fallen off the crossword. So That's fun. At any rate. Anyway. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in the same way that, uh, Jack and I have many talents, uh, from poems to crosswords to spelling piece. <laughs> Yasmin is Connor also... plays the saxophone. <laughs> He's a very good saxophonist. Okay, Jack actually is a good musician, but Simi Yasmin is actually a multi-talented professional in a way that defies my comprehension except that i have witnessed it and now i comprehend it but i don't know how it happened but yasmin is an emmy award-winning journalist medical doctor professor and an author and a poet um she's currently directing the stanford health communication initiative um she's teaching at stanford um and she's done a lot of reporting uh some in dallas and she also uh went to i believe it was liberia during i think it was like towards the end of the ebola epidemic and reported on um ebola survivors in liberia um she also writes fiction she has also helped stop misinformation about covid um, yeah it's, it's very cool in addition to her poetry i would expect if you've run into her it's probably via whether you knew it was her or not like a youtube video featuring you know like doctor explains the seven things you need to know to stay covid safe or whatever she's done a number of those and also appeared in like interviews and stuff on various you know big youtube information channels like she's done wired interview stuff that's like seems like sort of a riff on the autocomplete interview where it's like the web's most asked questions about covid or something and she gives real medical information about them yeah and her book and we'll dive more into this later but is is a great synthesis and exploration of of all of her many expertises um and yeah i think i will read um this poem which is called if god is a virus if god is a virus she is vexed absolutely done with your shit god wants to know why you didn't get a flu shot why her minions made your left lung collapse white out on the x-ray rack up a six-figure ICU bill when all they wanted was a warm vacation, tropical waters, 
champagne plasma to sip, not bring about death, not to turn prunes in plural fluid. No body wants that. God thinks anti-vaxxers have a death wish, wonders how they eat organic, snort Coke and laundry detergent on weekends. Don't they know yogi detox tea is hepatotoxic? God knew Charles Darwin. Clever woman, she said. Who would want your lot extinct? Boom. Boom. I like it. <laughs> I think there would be a uh, a potentially fun comparison to Ariana Grande's God is a woman. But oh. <laughs> I don't know that these I don't know that those works are actually in conversation with each other. <laughs> it just sort of popped into my head. Um, it pops into my head when I hear uh, God is a virus or if God is a virus. And then maybe the what if God was one of us songs, perhaps. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I love this poem. It is zipping with its language. Um, yes. And I am very excited to get into that and the nitty gritty there. Um, Let's get that narrative. Well, yep. You're right, Jack. We got to do our little play-by-play just to kind of break down of what's what's going on in the poem for just to start things off. Um, Please, Connor. This is a poem about God. It's a pray-by-pray. Oh. <laughs> this humor is brought to you by uh, one informally lapsed Unitarian and one informally non-lapsed Unitarian. I presented a Unitarian Universalist service just the day before yesterday you are a devout i am the founder of pope watch 2013 and will there be a new pope (laughs) and then pope watch 2014 15 16 17 18 19 20 and 21 hey this seems like the coolest pope (laughs) this is as cool as popes can get pope watch Okay, this doesn't make any sense, but I never will have a chance to bring this up. But one of my great friends from college, Robbie, shout out Robbie, once asked this question on a scale of one to 10, how many popes were there? And then he would look in your eyes like, yeah. I mean, the answer is at least 10 because there have been just so many popes. Well, there have been a lot of popes, but it's not about that. It's about the scale. Yeah, on a scale of one to 10, there have been 10 or more popes. <laughs> All right, Jack, you're taking this question too no, much. No, 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 like I don't mean there have literally been more than 10 popes. I mean, like on a scale of the universe, there has been a 10 level of popes. Like there was 10 a year, level, you're right. There was a year of four popes. Well, that's true. That was definitely... In 1978, there were three popes in one year. That recently... Like when they had three popes in one year, they really turned the pope up to eleven. That's what happened then, I think. Yeah. Um, right, but there's always one. Sometimes, like for a whole chunk of history, there were two. Right. Like, that is in aggregate on a scale aggregate, of one to ten. Pretty ten. ten. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a ten. It's Probably one question. time it was an eight. I liked it. I mean, I like the question. It's just like it's got an obvious answer. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. 
There was, there's a movie called Two Popes. There's two popes right now, technically, sort of. <laughs> I mean, one of them's not in office, but he's, you know, poping around doing his weird, oh, I'm Benedict. Oh, oh I hate everything. Oh, Everything's terrible. Don't change anything ever. Oh, no. Except I can't be Pope anymore. <laughs> all right, all right. He's like the cool, chill Pope who's actually <laughs> the Pope. What's up? It's your boy Francis. Corporations are the devil. <laughs> hey, everybody. Guess what? Turns out fake news is just as bad as eating poop. Woo, cowbunga. He actually said that. It's amazing. Wow. He likened it to uh, eating literal poop. Wow. He was like, don't read it. Because <laughs> if you do, it's pretty good. It's like you're analogy. eating poop. Pope out. That's that's among the better papal similes, I would say. <laughs> cool pope. So, anyway, cool pope. play by play. Play by play. So yeah, I mean, the title doing a lot of work is this imagined hypothetical. If God is a virus, um, what would God be thinking? Um, and it's basically like, God's like, what's the fuck? Uh, I'm done with your shit. Get your flu shot. Um, why are you dying? Because, and then there's this interesting part. Um, you know, the minions, the viral minions, um, they didn't want to do all this killing and stuff. Um, what they wanted was a warm vacation, tropical water, champagne plasma to sip, not to bring about death. Um, so there's a, you know, another function of viruses that this God, this virus God would have preferred. Um, and <laughs> it's like, you guys are killing yourselves off with your wild approach to uh <laughs> vaccines and viruses uh but yeah that just it's i'm a little perplexed about it there's a lot more going on but that's kind of it's a very basic sense of things i think um and i was actually i was listening to there's a great conversation that Sima yasmin has with um Stephen Thrasher, I believe. Basically, when her uh collection came out, um, which was this past May, I believe. Um, and she was talking about the kind of the origin of the title and um things like this and and was talking about, and there's, a, there's, there's set, you know, the book has several poems that are called If God is a Virus, and there's other poems, um, you know, that um, like self-portrait as a virus and um, all these, these kinds of imaginings. Um, and Yasmin talks about how like eight or 12% of the human genome is, is probably viral. Um, and, you know, mentions that um, it's actually thought this I had did not know, but the 
ability for placentas to fuse is likely from an ancestral part of our DNA that was viral. And so she says viruses are, you know, many things and they're doing lots of stuff. And some of those things are actually like the key to our literal survival. And so, you know, um, yeah, I just thought I would kind of mention that because it it's, it's kind of like <laughs> this poem is like, you guys, you humans out there, you're just like, A, viruses are bad, but also they're not that bad, so we don't have to do anything about it. And like, you could just get vaccinated and like let viruses run their course and do interesting things. And some of them will be good. You know, mutations are like how people evolve and all this stuff, but instead, you're being crazy. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I found that cause I, especially that we're in COVID times, it's like <laughs> my meaning of virus is death, death maker. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Which like it absolutely is. Um, but it's also, you know, many other things. Um, and so, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and this poem also like puts it in conversation with the idea of evolution, with the explicit call out of Darwin towards the end um, and not in, you know, kind of, a, well, you're weak and you die from a virus if you're not whatever. It's like, no, obviously viruses are part of the story of human evolution. And, you know, that's part of why we are the way we are now is because our genomes were shaped over millennia of different forces acting upon them. Um which is part of what I find really interesting about this poem is its general kind of attitude and tone for a poem that is called If God is a Virus. Um, it's like, I feel like, you know, part of it is that we were growing up in a Unitarian Universalist environment questioning everything, but also like the, the mid to late 2000s, the mid to late aughts, I think were sort of a heyday for the new atheists. Mm. And uh, if yeah. any of them were writing this poem or writing on this subject with a title like, if God is a virus, it would be like, the then like religion is the disease and <laughs> we are all infected with its symptoms and uh, uh, whatever. Uh, yeah. I'm Richard Dawkins and God. Uh, uh, and like, you know, I get where they're coming from, but many of them, even at the time, but certainly since then, decided to show their entire asses um, whether <laughs> yeah. it's like sam harris's weird podcast or christopher hitchens shilling for the iraq war and being an islamophobe uh in addition to his many other problems but yeah. like you know you have this whole group of folks where uh like this kind of title feels to me like one that they would be very into, but this is such a different perspective on what a title like that can mean, where it can point to and what talking about God or evolutionary biology or viruses can look like. Because I think something that I really like is you do have a writer who is interdisciplinary in a way that like a lot of quote unquote public intellectual figures tend to be. It's another resonance I sort of see with that like new atheist crowd where 
they are, you know, history and maybe also science or something, and they are bringing it together to talk about, you know, putting science in conversation with religion or whatever. And some of that is happening here, but it's also happening on a much deeper and different level because she like she's writing about this and she's talking about how viruses impact the way that our biology works and beneficial adaptations that we have developed because of our interactions with viruses. But she's also writing from the perspective of someone who has seen firsthand through her work, the horrors of viruses. Um, And this book, obviously drawing on her experiences reporting on and caring for people with Ebola. You know, that's a very different perspective to bring. And I think there's obviously you know, her project is not the same as the new atheists by any means. She's not trying to disprove God or, you know, argue for evolution against creationism or anything like that. But it's a very deliberate choice to name your book if God is a virus. And it's a very deliberate choice to write this poem with that framing. And I feel like it's a much more empathetic and complex way of bringing those different things together. Um, which I find very interesting. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, that really resonates and yeah, no, it's, it's totally, it's totally true. And, and, and also, um, elsewhere in that conversation, she talked about how, um, her mom was a, um, an AIDS activist, um, and that that kind of informed how she went into medicine and also kind of informs how her like journalist ethos is kind of, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't, uh, you know, fuck with the false objectivity notions and neutrality and all that stuff. Um, and and it, it makes me think too, you know, a lot of, you know, the other poems, um, you know, in this book, there's a, there's like one of the, I just, this conversation is so fascinating and it provides a lot of um, context for me. But, you know, one of the things that she was talking about is when she went to Liberia to do her reporting, um, I think it was through something with the Pulitzer Center and part of what they were, uh, what they support are like underreported stories. And she came, basically, she was saying like, right as the epidemic was, was it wasn't at the peak, um, it was getting a little better, um, but it was still very much there. But um, you know, basically Western journalists, like Western media was no longer interested in it um, because it wasn't a kind of, you know, Orientalist uh, spectacle of death. Um, And it was at that point, there was little concern about it touching the United States in any meaningful way. Right. Like that, that, right. I I can hear the editors now saying, (laughs) well, I don't know that there's a news hook for this and nobody cares. Like, yeah, right. well, exactly. It's your job to make them care. <laughs> Did you consider that? Yeah. Um, having gone to journalism school. And- yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and now, like I was thinking, I'm, I'm going to go read her work on that more deeply because of, you know, everything that 
like long COVID and like the story of surviving one of these diseases is, you know, a kind of suffering often very acute in its own right. Um, you know, there's the kind of one, one thing that I find very sort of fascinating about her work and her poems and her perspective is that it's not just like viruses. It's also like, you know, every, everything is, is human understood through people. And so like viruses are understood and talked about in a certain way. And there are like medical discourses and there are like journalistic discourses about medicine and like, you know, there's so, you know, and, and obviously like something she talks about a lot is just the intense, um, you know, racism that uh, kind of imbues so much of the way we understand viruses and the way we approach that stuff. Um, and I was thinking about it like <laughs> I read this poem and we we picked it uh, like just as the Omicron variant was getting attention and it was like just classic Western like colonial racism where it was like South-African scientists were just like actually on the ball and <laughs> right. like identified the virus and were like, hey, this is a new one. And like, it probably was like in Europe first, but then everyone just banned travel from Southern Africa. Um, some of the countries hadn't even detected the variant. Meanwhile, it's running rampant through Europe and elsewhere that are, don't have the travel ban. And it's just like, that's just like such a egregious case of it. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's this, you know, and, and obviously like COVID has been from the beginning, um, like it coming from China and the way that the right and Republicans and Trump have weaponized that to kind of um, fuel xenophobic and anti-Asian and anti-Chinese racism. Um, so like where this poem is kind of coming in is a kind of like, at least moments of it are just a very incisive kind of almost satire and just like dig at, I would say, you know, I mean, like in the stereotypical anti-vaxxer of like a somewhat wealthy white American who's having, you know, it's like God thinks anti-vaxxers have a death wish, wonders how they eat organic, snort Coke and laundry detergent on weekends don't they know yogi detox tea is hepatotoxic, um, which like is like a causing liver disease or whatever. And it's this, you know, it's, it's sort of pointing out this like, oh, you're so concerned about wellness, but you're like, you know, poo-pooing the one thing that <laughs> will keep you well. And then at the same time, you're demonizing um, whole groups of people uh, based on the association that countries are making to the virus. And it's, it's fascinating to me to like bring all of those different kind of layers 
with the premise of if God is a virus of like, and coming from a really deep, like complex way of understanding, you know, what viruses is like are in a, in a, you know, medical and biological sense. Yeah. It's, it's just like, it's amazing. (laughs) It is. And I particularly liked that call out of uh like the wellness oriented anti-vaxxer because i feel like that doesn't get quite as much air perhaps as uh you know like other forms of (laughs) anti-vaccine rhetoric Um, yeah but i think it is where for the most part for the last probably decade or so anti-vaccine sentiment has really grown is in those like wellness communities and these sort of more new agey left skewing spaces that are you know the reason that you can now find yoga studios with anti-vaccine notes in their window and a lot of uh a lot of vaccine skeptical people (laughs) with very committed yoga practices i one of my mom's friends her husband is like a fitness guy and is really into eating healthy and organic and everything won't get the vaccine because you know he keeps close track of everything he puts in his body and <laughs> it's also interesting where that leads because he now has ordered that you know the truth about fauci book and so through his initial skepticism of vaccines it seems like there may be a, a darker road to be trod mm. um, because of the kind of viewpoints that that then makes you sympathetic to which is fascinating in its own way because i feel like you know this poem doesn't quite go to those places but it does trace how uh like the virus itself leads from one thing to another you get that big long sentence you know god wants to know why you didn't get a flu shot why her minions made your left lung collapse like why didn't you do this thing to keep you from having these horrendous effects because you actually have something you could do that would mean that this virus which you know all it wants is a warm vacation, tropical water, champagne, plasma sip. Like it just wants to hang out in your body, reproduce, move on, whatever. And you have a way of protecting yourself from that. Um, it doesn't want to kill you. And you actually like, it's within your means to do something about it. I feel like there's a little bit of that with like uh, information interventions and viral information on the internet. Like there's a reason it's called viral. It spreads and there are ways to inoculate yourself to bad viral information like as soon as one part of it gets in, it kind of breaks the dam. And unless you have your defenses up, then you can become overrun by this, you know, vicious sludge of disinformation. You know, obviously in in COVID times, those two things are deeply, deeply interrelated. Um, but it also put me in mind of the uh, the standard joke of like, you know, the guys on the rooftop and a person comes by in a boat and is like, hey, do you want to... <laughs> take a boat to safety he's like no, no no god's got this i'm praying to god and he'll take care of me and the guy in the boat's like yeah whatever i tried and then a guy comes by in a helicopter and is like hey we came to airlift you off of your roof because the waters are rising do you want to like do you want to get on the helicopter he's like no no no. i'm praying to god god will send a sign it'll be fine and then he like drowns and he shows up at the pearly gates and he's like god what the fuck man <laughs> I thought she had my back. What happened? And God is like, I did. There was a dude in a boat. There was a dude in a helicopter. Like, what more did you want me to do? And then the guy's like, oh no. Oh, <laughs> damn. Oh, if only. 
Um, yeah. I don't know. For some reason, I've been thinking about that a lot lately in various situations because it just seems like, you know, pertinent to most of the things where we have the power to enact change and for some reason just continue not to. It's like no one's actually telling you not to do this. The thing you're asking for is possible and we should just do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the uh, the meme, the hot dog costume meme from I Think You Should Leave, where the hot dog car drives into a clothing store and there's a guy in a hot dog costume standing in the store who is like, who could have done this? We all want to figure out who did this. <laughs> no, definitely. It's I think all of that is is really right. And there's um, it's a very strange time for information. Yeah, there's um, this poem more specifically is is kind of thinking about obviously that the anti-vaxxers and and the people who are who are kind of refusing this treatment she also in in other parts of the book it's like you know with with the racism of of the medical industry and all the ways that capitalism has kind of distorted the way people are cared for and that we talk about care i have my own skepticisms sometimes about what certain doctors are telling me. Sometimes it's because they talk to me with contempt, you know, and, and this poem actually, you know, it, it does allude to some of these issues too, where like, like why her minions made your left lung collapse, white out on the x-ray, rack up a six figure ICU bill when all they wanted was a warm vacation that, you know, that super expensive ICU bill of like either not having insurance or having insurance that your insurance is going crazy about and just like charging you a million dollars. I mean, that's, um, that's also a reason that people stay away from the medical system because it's, it's an, it's both a, a banally awful experience to just like uh, be on the phone with, insurance providers and be on hold and like try to answer figure out what's actually happening and it's just like a totally cruel system that just tries to take your money um in ways that don't make any sense like that that part also is adding a texture of like i don't know it's it's not just the people but it's also these systems that are just like set up to kill a bunch of us and you know i mean like covid is a case in point well, yeah i mean well and this is why it is ludicrous that healthcare would ever be a marketplace because you can't actually opt out of it it is not a market exactly like you yeah. can't there is no market everyone is forced into it which is yep. why it doesn't work which is why a capitalist approach to healthcare is broken and why people talk about healthcare as a human right because it actually is like all of us deserve to be healthy people <laughs> it's yes, it's exactly. not actually that hard to understand um, i know you know in the poem using an expansive idea a world-spanning omnipresent idea like god i think hints at that aspect of viruses or particularly ones that rise to the level of being a truly global pandemic because you do have countries that were incredibly responsible and did successfully limit community spread like new zealand but because the world didn't get on board, they were unable to sustain it because you actually can't just do that indefinitely. And if the whole world had taken the approach of a place like New Zealand and just literally subsidized shutdowns and done everything in their power, 
they could have limited community spread until vaccines were available, put reasonable restrictions on folks. Like if you want to go back to work, you have to get vaccinated. If you want to use, you know, if you want to get on a plane, you need to be vaccinated, whatever. There's every possibility that there would have been millions fewer deaths. And it's, you know, obviously it's a logistical nightmare to try and make that happen. But the really dispiriting thing is that even in a place where it works, it can only work for so long. And New Zealand had to ease travel restrictions and had to ease some of what <laughs> what they had put in place to like insulate them from the rest of the world because it's just not sustainable. And like yeah. any of these different things that kind of travel via people, it's one of the quirks of our contemporary moment that people live on all the different continents in huge numbers and can travel quickly and easily between them, which changes, you know, the way that viruses can spread. I don't know. I'm curious. So like COVID has now been going on for almost two years. Part of what I'm thinking about with this is like, you know, it's been so long that even responsible countries have to lift some restrictions just to like exist in the world, whatever. But COVID is such an all-encompassing thing, a little bit like climate change um reading this poem and thinking about this book and like making art but i'm curious what are pieces of like covid art what will that look like and this is a question that i think came up to me in the most interesting way uh thinking about like what are the really great pieces of art of the trump era like what really captured that and some people say like oh it's succession like it's this bone dry satire that presents this world seriously in a way that's barely different from how it presents itself. But when you put it out, you know, not in its initial context, it becomes this like ludicrous farcical depiction of what that world is like or whatever. I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but that's, you know, an example of like, what is the great piece of Trump era art? Maybe it's that, you know, it's not going to be like an SNL skit or something. I'm sort of curious because there's also like, is there a great piece of like climate catastrophe art i don't know necessarily but i'm, I'm curious about that too um mm-hmm. but i'm curious also for like your thoughts on what would the like covid or pandemic inspired art look like because i think it might be something that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with like the virus itself but maybe it's a meditation on like the ways in which we are and are not dangerous to each other or something like it could be on that sort of more conceptual level. Um, there's going to be the new Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence fight a comet movie. Oh yeah. And uh, Meryl Streep won't help or whatever it's called. Um, don't look and up. Jonah Hill gets in the way. Yeah. Don't look it up because then you'll find out about science, but like it's a movie that <laughs> seems like it's about, I think they're positioning it as being about like climate denial, but it feels to me like it, will also probably feel like pandemic stuff too. And I don't know how much they were thinking about that, but I, just, I happened to see an interview with Jonah Hill. Um, and at the end of it, he like calls out, you know, call your senators and congressmen about climate stuff, basically. So it seems like they're really positioning it as like science denial in the realm of climate. And there's this existential threat because it's a comet and the existential threat of climate change and, and whatever. But I actually found myself watching the trailer and being uninterested in it because it felt like COVID where like, I don't need to watch a president ignore this. I've seen that, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, and obviously that's true of climate as well, but it felt more direct with the 
kind of COVID situation. Um, so I'm, I don't know, knowing that movie's on the horizon and reading and thinking about this poem and this book, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that for this book. And also just in general, what might the kind of COVID art thing be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously I have no idea. Um, I think, I think that <laughs> that's so right about the trailer for don't look up. I've been, that's, what's been so bewildering and infuriating especially in the past few months where it's like like during trump it was like okay that guy's the monster and so it's like politically salient and also right to be like wow he's a monster who doesn't care about covid and is causing mass death so let's cover it like the travesty that it is or like the coverage is just like the coverage is just the, it, it really reminds me bad. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the extended period of time where every day on the nightly news, they would display and read the names of casualties from Iraq and Afghanistan mm. just continually long after the mission accomplished banner and the photo op and everything. But like, it feels to me like we're there. Like this is a forever war of a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's like Minnesota, there's like not beds in the ICU right now. And like our governor, Tim Believe Science Waltz is like masks are not correlated with better outcomes for COVID. It's just like, what to the question of art. So, I mean, one thing that I mentioned in the beginning, the language of this poem is on fucking fire. Don't they know Yogi Detox Tea is hepatotoxic? Holy shit. Uh, that's fucking awesome. Um, like making the word <laughs> hepatotoxic, which I had to look up. It's like liver disease. Not a good thing. Um, so clinical. So unpoetic like by itself when it's also like the exact right word because all of those detoxes are like oh we'll cleanse you and like that's literally what your liver does and they're bad for your liver <laughs> like you don't need to detox your liver detoxes for you detoxing is <laughs> is not medical in any way because your liver takes care of it and you shouldn't drink too much because then your liver has to deal with all the toxins you're putting in your body <laughs> and your liver's like super good at dealing with toxins and then you yeah. drink all this weird stuff and these teas and your liver is like, oh no, what are you doing to me? <laughs> Absolutely. The sound and the sense are married in a beautiful way. Um, but yeah, it's just like that word. It's so long. It's very hard to say. It's clean. It has these medical connotations. Um, and then you have Yogi Detox Tea, um, this kind of mishmash of like jokey about new age wellness and short words, like not, you know, they're of, of the 
people will say it like someone could say Yogi Detox Tea on a comedy special and like <laughs> that would make sense. Um, and yet they like go together in the sounds like obviously the X of the toxes are both there in the kind of same root word. Um, but you have the T's in the T and the hepata toxic. And then, you know, you have like the O sounds and um, like E, like the hepata toxic and the T, yogi, detox. It's a perfect pairing of like unlike textures of language um in all sorts of sense but then as you were pointing out and i didn't fully appreciate it makes <laughs> perfect actual sense in a way because it's it's a poem it has the space for all of those words to come together but then it's not just the words it's the worlds in which those words are from and so it's bringing in all of those things like at the same time. And that is happening, you know, throughout the poem in, in, in so many different ways where the, the sound is totally unified, but the tones and the, the textures are changing. Like in, in the beginning, it comes out in full force. Like she is vexed. Okay, we've got a confused God we got vexed like that's a slightly you know it's not a ten dollar word but it's a five dollar word and it's um, not that far from vexed and it's not that far from vexed exactly definitely setting it up and then it's like absolutely done with your shit and it's like whoa we're swearing um you know this is an explicit podcast now um <laughs> scandal um yeah it's just like you know okay why didn't you get a flu shot sure then we get minions it gets kind of brutal in a in a sort of um it, it kind of turns into like creative nonfiction language a little bit where it's like your left lung collapse white out on the x-ray rack up a six-figure icu bill um where you know the apps works with the X's and the six figure and the rack and the collapse and the, you know, all the sounds are working, but it's, and it's, you know, it's like precise in a, you know, it's the left lung, right? It's, it's not just your lungs are collapsing. It's like, oh yeah, it's that one. You can see it on the X-ray. Um, and then it goes into a new fantasy, kind of almost like an infomercial for a cruise or something. Like a, all they wanted was a warm vacation, tropical waters. And then it gets kind of weird, like champagne plasma to sip. It again, it works because of those M's and those A sounds of the champagne and the plasma. Um, and, and it works because it's like, champagne is the vacationy but the plasma is like viruses that they're not trying to tan they want to hang in the plasma i guess you know that's the life of a virus <laughs> not to turn prunes in plural fluid um and it's a per like plural fluid is like the plural cavity it's like where the lungs are so it's again it's she's staying very 
um, medically kind of accurate, even as she's like playing around with all these kinds of images. Um, and also the, the, like the lowness of the sounds of turn prunes in plural fluid. <laughs> it's like, you gotta go to the bottom of your mouth. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then just great enjambments of like, no body wants that. It's like, it's about the body. Um, and then, you know, there's also just, there's the, you know, no moment is left un, like, God knew Charles Darwin, clever woman, she said, uh, both God and Darwin are, are women here, you know, it's, it's a, it's a feminist rewriting without, like, that's the, <laughs> that's the underlayer, right? It's not just like, um, like, that's a given, okay. Uh, so see, that's, this is fascinating. <laughs> Cause I spent a lot of time there and I was wondering, is it a gender bent Darwin, which is what feels like the most natural way those lines flow. Mm -hmm. Or are we saying that God is a clever woman? And what she said is who would want your lot extinct, mm. which I didn't think of the first couple times through, but then I realized, Oh, maybe that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I like either way, but I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think I initially read it as like God saying Darwin was a clever woman. Yeah. And like, because she was clever, why would anyone want to like toss you humans out? You guys are all right. If Darwin's all right. <laughs> like I, I can vouch for Darwin. So <laughs> why? <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. Um but no, I, I, I see it that way too. I mean, it definitely opens itself up to that reading by the bending of the gender for sure. Because um, then I think you might even go to like a darker place with that, which is like not the bending of the gender, but if she's saying Darwin was clever and then who would want, and or if it's being attributed to God, clever woman, God, she said, who would want your lot extinct is maybe like pointing towards the sort of Darwin award yeah. side of things of like, well, only the dumbasses are not getting <laughs> vaccines. Right. And, you know, do you think I want you extinct or something? Like just do the smart stuff <laughs> and you'll stick around and you'll benefit from like the things that viruses can provide and you won't die from them. But yeah, no, my original reading is exactly what you were saying of like darwin's a woman mm -hmm. you yeah. believe darwin's a woman <laughs> atheist ariana oh my god i love it um yeah so like i kind of just ran through the poem as just in pure admiration um but i think like here's what i'll put forth something that's so hard right now the magnitude of catastrophe is so enormous the magnitude of the failures like it's so like systems level and also the kind of the arc of it <laughs> is terrible it's like 
the climax is just going on forever. Friend of the pod, Mike, once said, and I don't even know if he remembers this, uh, that the thing about a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood. The Master. The the Master. Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread. He's married to Maya Rudolph. (laughs) They... You know, if you think about like the traditional uh, narrative structure of like the Freitag's pyramid, where you have your your beginning, then you have your inciting incident, sets off the tension, the conflict, you're escalating, you're escalating, tensions are rising, then you hit the boom, conflict, and then you kind of go down the other side of the pyramid into the resolution um, that ties up the threads. Basically, Mike was saying that his movies, they hit the kind of climax and then they just ride on them for like too long, like intentionally. <laughs> so you're just like there and like, and it's actually definitely true in like Boogie Nights, I'm remembering, where just like shit hits the fan. But then it's like, usually it's like, okay, once it hits the fan, it hits the floor and then you pick it up. And then like you have a a finished thing. That's the resolution. But like shit just hits the fan and keeps hitting the fan. And you're like, oh my God, this is unbearable. And it just, it, (laughs) it feels like we're in that anyway, which is just to say it doesn't fit in all of these ways. It's like beyond my head. And not that like this particular poem like captures literally everything about COVID, but one thing that it can do because it's, it's working on, um, and, you know, like it also, it's different than sort of more straight reporting or journalism or nonfiction in that it's not about the information that it's giving you or about a theory or an analysis or like, oh, I understand, like, like got epidemiology, like 101 or like, I know why our broken healthcare system makes pandemics like (laughs) more likely to keep going or whatever, Um, which are like totally valuable. But like, there's this weird thing where like the, the feeling is kind of lacking there sometimes. And to me, there's this, the, the way that the languages and the rhythm and the music can like create this felt sense in myself. And then the way that all of these worlds that are all part of the world that is like of viruses and epidemics and pandemics and things are like all together. It's like, it creates this bigger space for me that I feel like I can sit in a little bit and like feel something of what's going on because it it's one of those things where like when it's too big it's like you can't process it you can't feel it in the full ways but that doesn't mean it's not fucking you up basically but i will say like this kind of poetry is well suited for the the scale 
and the the kind of varying magnitudes of like what's going on. And if you visit the Pulitzer website, I think they refer to it repeatedly as documentary poetry, which is like an interesting kind of term to use. Um, and I think, yeah, I think in the realm of art, it probably comes down to the old, you know, specific versus general kind of distinctions, right? Like how specific are you being? How general can you be? How much are you going beyond a medical description of what's going on or even like a journalistic account of an experience in a location with people? You know, like, are you doing that kind of even like a very literary narrative piece of journalism, it's not necessarily going to become the piece of art that people refer to about, you know, any major event. Like it's pretty rare that that happens. Um, And I think that's like one of the big questions about like, what will be, what are the pieces of art that a lot of people associate with different things? Like for the Vietnam era, there's a lot of music and there's a lot of movies that are sort of the pieces of art. And a lot of them are pretty direct. There are other pieces of art that grow out of certain moments, like maybe a play like the crucible that grows out of the red scare in the fifties and clearly is engaging with that, but is general enough that it ends up being like continually reproduced and people find meaning you know on both sides of the political aisle in the messages of it i think you see something similar with stuff like particularly 1984 also brave new world like probably more contemporary example would be a movie like v for vendetta you know people on the left and the right are like people shouldn't be afraid of their governments governments should be afraid of their people like <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the there actually was a recent SNL skit like can you guess if this person's a Republican? <laughs> and they would come out and they'd be like, "My body, my choice." Like, wait, do you mean that for vaccines or abortion? <laughs> um, and I think that's like where V for Vendetta is because you know, oh yeah, people shouldn't be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Do you mean like the right to protest, or do you mean like you're in a militia? Yeah, yeah, right. Like which. Which of these things in that yeah. message resonates with you? Yeah. If you knew your government was responsible for the deaths of 100,000 people, would you really want to know? It's like, okay, are you into <laughs> that line because you think it's a conspiracy and it's a pandemic, <laughs> Or are you into that line because you think a horribly irresponsible quasi-fascistic government covered up <laughs> the severity or tried to downplay the severity of a very real problem? <laughs> which of these things are you into like the movie i actually think is pretty explicit about which side because you know (laughs) they round up all the gay folks and uh they jail all the protesters anyway yeah the main point is that like it is where does it fall on that kind of like specific versus general line and i feel like this you know a book like this gets to a spot where it is obviously deeply engaged with the specific issues of this time, but it does reach out, um, which like, just as you're describing, you know, it can do things as a poem that other art forms wouldn't necessarily be able to do, or, you know, other forms of, I don't know, recording the account that are not in the arts wouldn't be able to do, you know, I don't know what the, what the COVID art will be, but I don't think it's going to be a movie that takes place during the pandemic where everybody wears masks or something, you know, like the, the great piece, you know, the, the pieces of nine 11 art are not world trade center or flight 93 United 93. Like those movies that just show the events or they use them as the vehicle to tell the story are not 
the really like effective pieces of 9-11 art that get to the heart of yeah. something meaningful about what that event or the fallout from it really was a, about. Yeah. I but I, no. I just feel, yeah, I just feel like this book and this poem are like somewhere on that continuum. I agree. Yeah, no, I really agree. I think those are all great reference points to think about what that could mean. Um, yeah. And it's interesting too, like these aren't the big touchstones, but like, and this is just one that I always come back to because I was, <laughs> I was in the play in high school. So I Rhinoceros. read it a lot. Rhinoceros. Yeah. Uh, oh which... man, you were amazing. That kind of played the saxophone in that. <laughs> oh geez. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, he was great. Well, Thank you. It was, I saw this show more than once, and you were you great did. both you times. Were... The first time you had your beard, yeah, that was our true. first taste of bearded Connor. The world had no idea what was to come. It was quite a little stubble at that point. It was there wasn't much I could do, but I tried. I tried. Yeah, but that play, yeah, Rhinoceros by Eugenie Esco was, you know, kind of directly written as an allegory for like. Italy's descent into fascism um, in the 30s. And, you know, it's like everyone turns into rhinoceroses. <laughs> but um, there was a great essay that I uh, read um, after Trump was elected by Teju Cole um, that was talking about this play and how it might be kind of... Um, uniquely suited to our time and i i've still been thinking about it too because um the structure of the play is like the first act it's like a cafe and then they're just like look a rhinoceros and like they say that line like a million times in the like in the french it's like oh and um it's like but it's like the spectacle and the the oh my god what a weird thing that's a kind of ugly and then there's all this like speculation and there's a logician that's like what's the nature of a rhinoceros um that felt very much like trump as like the first act it's like look a trump <laughs> cuz then over the course of the play the rhinoceroses become not just normalized but like revered and like aspired to but it's interesting because it's you know that that play it's not super iconic Ionesco is very wordy and he needed an editor and as a result doesn't get on put on super a lot but um <laughs> I brought it up because it as as history unfolds before our eyes the parallels and the connections that some works of art you know, that, that were made long ago become like newly resonant, I think. Um, and so that'll be also an interesting thing to watch is like, okay, maybe in the next couple of years, this, this book of poems or this novel or this movie is like the kind of defining um, COVID piece. Um, and then 15 years from now, it's, it's, something else or something like that it's funny you mentioned rhinoceros because actually just earlier today i read an an editorial essay 
from nonsite.org called The Whole Country is the Reichstag. And it opens with a quote from Rhinoceros. And it's about how the contemporary GOP and its willingness to, you know, break bread with Trump and all of his various uh, associated unpleasantries is a warning sign about encroaching fascism, which has spread all around the country. And there's hope, but kind of right along the lines of what you're saying, I'll send you the link to this because it's very much in line with that kind of analysis. One other thing that I love on a much smaller level, but you know, you did a very nice breakdown of kind of the sounds and how they move through the poem, but there are a couple of excellent line breaks as well that I think Mm. deserve a little shout out. Uh, The first is on the fifth line. Why didn't you get a flu line break shot? Love that. Very cool. And then also later in the poem, after this, you know, languid discussion about the viruses, uh, you know, vacation and all this kind of stuff. The next sentence is nobody wants that, but it's no line break body wants that, which is also very cool. Also, honestly, the line after no body wants that is God thinks anti-vaxxers have a death wish. God thinks gets to set on its own line, which is also very cool. <laughs> yep, absolutely. No, the, the line breaks are working great. Should we read it again? Let's hear it again. All right. This is If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. If God is a virus, she is vexed. Absolutely done with your shit. God wants to know why you didn't get a flu shot. Why her minions made your left lung collapse, white out on the x-ray, rack up a six-figure ICU bill when all they wanted was a warm vacation, tropical waters, champagne plasma to sip, not to bring about death, not to turn prunes in plural fluid. Nobody wants that. God thinks anti-vaxxers have a death wish, wonders how they eat organic, snort coke, and laundry detergent on weekends. Don't they know Yogi Detox Tea is hepatotoxic? God knew Charles Darwin. Clever woman, she said. Who would want your lot extinct? I have a question for you, and you know what it is. I think I do. So let it rip. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> as 2021 comes Jack, to Jack, 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 I yeah. need to ask the question. You said let it rip. I'm letting it rip. Jack, it was I'm... part of the fun. Uh, yes, Connor. What's your question? <laughs> I was wondering what media, movies, books, poems, songs, have you been encountering lately? That's funny because I was just wondering when you were going to let me let it rip. Hey, let it rip. <laughs> um, Guy. Okay, let it rip. <laughs> so, you know, I love a Western. 
Oh, especially good ones. Uh, and I've watched two recently, one of which I recommend. Ooh, shots fired. Um, <laughs> get ready. This one's hot off the top of the dome. No, so I watched uh, the new Benedict Cumberbatch starring Jane Campion directed uh, The Power of the Dog. And I also watched The Harder They Fall, both of which are on Netflix. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh-oh. Are you familiar with Melissa Villasenor's sketch about the Oscars? I don't know, but I love her. I think for the 2019 Oscars, whichever one had Joker in it, um, Melissa Villasenor did this weekend update appearance where she talked about uh, the Oscars and basically pointed out that all of the ones that were nominated for the major awards had to do with white male rage. But it also discussed how like, Joker was white male rage and uh, now I don't remember what all the other ones were. Joker's <laughs> the main one. Cause like, I haven't even seen that movie. Cause I saw the trailer and was like, I don't need this anyway. So here's the thing though. Right. <laughs> so like here, here's the situation, right? She did this great sketch about white male rage. I think that these two Westerns both on Netflix. So go out and watch both of them. I really recommend one of them, but I think it's interesting to watch both of them. I think they demonstrate what Oscar is so white is all about because there are certain stylistic things that are rewarded by the Oscars. So the power of the dog, Benedict Cumberbatch plays this rageful dude. And you know, I guess spoil, you find out why he's angry at the world, but he's just a fucking asshole the whole movie. And he's like softened a little bit at certain points and you find out why he is that way. And depending on your experience of the movie, you may have more or less sympathy for him I think it is generally like it's a very interesting idea. It's fascinating to explore it in the setting of the West. Benedict Cumberbatch is doing a lot of acting that I think kind (laughs) of in the end falls short because he can't do a convincing American accent, but that's just me. Mm. And it's won all of these different awards at major film festivals. It's got a, a many award winning director with it and it's getting all this attention and the actors are talking about all of the work that they did to craft their characters and all this other stuff. It's fine. I actually found it to be like the New York Times review of it is super gushing. And it's like, it's a good movie. And clearly Benedict Cumberbatch is doing some very good acting at times. The accent is like, (laughs) I can't get over it. I can't. I know that's my thing, but like, he sounds like he's doing an accent. It's hard. It's one of those things where like, if that's not good, it's hard to suspend this. It's hard to appreciate anything else. I felt that way about the, that, Incre- the Irishman where the old tech, the, the young, the de-aging just doesn't work. He still moves like he's 90. Like, it was very weird. And I was yeah. like, I can't, I didn't finish it. I couldn't. Yeah. It was also like a hundred hours long. <laughs> that, that, <I> did. <laughs> that was another one that Melissa talked about being all about white male rage. Cause it was the thing is in the power of the dog, it's basically an all white cast. The main characters are all white. It is shot like an indie film. It's acted like a character study and it's probably going to get a lot of awards attention. The much better and more innovative movie that is playing with genre more convincingly and transformatively, and I think has better central performances. So get that is the harder they fall, which is an almost entirely black Western, almost everybody in it is black and it opens 
and and it's gotten fine reviews. I mean, it's been well reviewed. People like it, but it's not getting the same tone of attention that the Power of the Dog is. And I think if either of these movies was going to be awarded and was going to be lauded and talked about as like adding new things to the genre of the Western, I think it should be the harder they fall. It opens with a screen that says these people existed. And it doesn't say it's based on a true story. The names of the characters are real people, but like the events are fictional. But it very strongly makes the point that like these are all of the people who've been left out of the cinematic West and left out of the idea of the West, even though, of course, there were tons of black cowboys and black people living in the West. What, what I also think is interesting is that in both of them, I think the genre of the Western is being fairly faithfully adhered to. People are less attuned to that in The Power of the Dog. Um, but if you know how Westerns work... I think it follows that narrative pretty closely. I'd be interested to hear from folks if they disagree. I'm not going to say exactly how, because I think it would be spoilers for the movie. I don't want to go there. But like, if you know anything about Westerns, you will be completely unsurprised by the way the story plays out. I think there is a piece of information that you learn about the Benedict Cumberbatch character that is outside of what's normally portrayed in Westerns. But the arc of the story absolutely adheres to how Westerns play out. So The Harder They Fall is like, it has elements of uh, like callbacks to black exploitation films, and it has callouts to spaghetti Westerns. It has this amazing soundtrack. There are these really vividly realized and brightly colored and inventively shot nightclub scenes. Like, it's so cool. And it has, you know, a gender fluid character and it has women in prominent roles. Uh, There is only kind of one main female character in The Power of the Dog and whatever. Um, (laughs) Played very well by Kirsten Dunst, but like her main thing that she does is be like drunk and upset (laughs) for a lot of the movie. And like, doesn't really have a lot of agency is being protected by or threatened by men the whole time. It's like, come on. The main point here is that the harder they fall is a great movie. (laughs) Check it out. It is fairly violent, but it also has these scenes that are just incredible. And you can tell that it is uh, similar to like when we talked about reservation dogs, like you can tell that this is not just in front of the camera, but also behind uh, it's the same with this movie and you get like the, the guy who directed it also did a bunch of work on the soundtrack and it's like clearly his vision. And it feels that way when you watch it, like this feels like a very strong directorial vision. And I personally think it should be rewarded, even though it is also well-reviewed. I find it fascinating that there are two movies that came out that both are legitimately using the Western as a vehicle to tell stories that are not traditionally set in the West, both of which adhere pretty faithfully to the overall shape of a Western narrative. And one of them is talked about as like, oh my God, Benedict Cumberbatch's <laughs> best performance of his entire career. Guess what? Idris Elba is one of the main characters in The Heart of They Fall, and he has a very convincing American accent. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> He's not going to get nominated for doing some phenomenal and subtle acting as Rufus Buck. 
there are scenes in both movies where there's just a close-up on Benedict Cumberbatch or a close-up on Idris Elba. And Benedict Cumberbatch is doing very strong facial acting. And it's like a great moment because he's not talking in his bad American accent. <laughs> and his eyes well with tears and you get a sense of his inner life. And there's a, a moment where the camera gets really close on Idris Elba's face. And basically what he's doing is he's indicating that he agrees to have this woman like sit down across from him. And he does it with the tiniest little flicker of a movement that just says everything about how comfortable and powerful his character feels and is and how good in control he is of the situation. Equally accomplished facial acting. But one of them <laughs> is going to go on talk shows and talk about the 15 months they spent understanding their characters, like whatever. And one of them is like already doing his next project. The harder they fall, though. The harder they fall. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. it's like if quentin tarantino had something to say other than did you know that i've seen a lot of movies because <laughs> it has that element to it but it's also like actually doing something else yeah the first white character who shows up gets off a train and begins to say the n-word but gets shot in the head before he can finish saying it nice it's that kind of movie That's it's awesome it is Definitely not oh. a Tarantino movie. <laughs> no. And to come full circle on our earlier conversation about nonsense poetry, the introductory music when you first meet Idris Elba's gang, who are like the bad guys, is this amazing, uh, like, scatted, groovy tune Ooh. Um, called Here I Come. And it is, they're riding across the plains mm. and uh, it's good stuff. Love it. Amazing. And it's the James Samuel remix who is the who is the director. So that gives you a sense of how involved he is with all different aspects of this and how much this is his vision. Yeah. Wait, I want to play you a part of it so that you can hear. right that's cool i know i admittedly the power of the dog also has a really great soundtrack that's just like creepy it's almost white lotus-esque it's very like mm -hmm. attention but mm -hmm. it's not that anyway that's what i've been up to amazing thinking about westerns what have you been up to as someone who's actually much farther west <laughs> <laughs> oh lord well jack let me take it down a notch. It's been tough times, and when it's tough times, you gotta watch a lot of Criminal Minds. I you know knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> tough times means Criminal Minds. Woo! Woo! Um. Yep. There's a lot of Criminal Minds out there. There's 15 seasons, and Sir and I have. Uh, well, let's say we've made good progress. <laughs> um, and, you know, let's just say politically antithetical to the values that I hold, but quite interesting to watch both through time. One thing I had forgotten was serial like 
kind of dramas and things that just like it's the same there's barely a long arc it and then they try to stay topical is like (laughs) that and you're watching it from like the 2000s to the present is you just you're like oh yeah that happened and people were like whoa like there's an episode where it's like the killer like has hacked like uber (laughs) rideshare stuff (laughs) and they're just like it's like a rideshare. It's like a <laughs> do you taxi. Think that they had, do you think that they like had to write it in as an Uber ad? Like Uber sponsored it or something and it was product integration? No, it wasn't. Or was it just literally like, mm, this is a weird It wasn't thing. Uber, actually. they uh, me- I think they mentioned Uber, but the actual thing, it wasn't any company that I knew. Okay. But it was just like one of those like, oh my God. And then there was a line. That was not too many years ago. Someone very serious asking another, do you know what a podcast is? (laughs) And this was like 2016, I think. Like, My God, the post-serial world. Yeah. I mean, I think it was. And now the new Ghostbusters movie, I believe, has a character named Podcast in it. (laughs) he's like a kid like you know how there'd be oh that kid radio always playing with his radios this is like yeah that kid podcast always podcast (laughs) (laughs) that's funny but i have to say the show is you know it's like so it's the bau it's the behavioral analysis unit they're catching serial killers and stuff and they do their behavioral profile and then they psychologize them and then they catch them and they save the day and the world, you know, is a little more right until the next morning. And then there's another serial killer. It's fun because it's just, I mean, it's fun for all the reasons that they are just like who done it. You get, they pick up the little pieces of like, Oh, this tell when they, are lying and all that crap. Um, the characters are genuinely very endearing. Um, and that has been fun to follow. It's also been fun when you watch a show that's the same, you really learn to see its bones in a way over time. With their signature moment is they're like, they, they get the final clue or what they think is. And then they're like, let's deliver the profile. And then they basically, <laughs> so crazy. They all take turns describing the psychology of the, of the killer, right? You know, white male, 30s to 40s. He's a family annihilator. He like, he's antisocial, so he probably has a menial job, like blah, blah, blah. In reality, literally one person would say the whole thing, but they all just do it in like a kind of quarrel, like like round, like one person says one sentence and then the next person says the next sentence. And they always tell the local cops that they're like coming in to help. And literally none of the cops do anything with that information they never they're never like 
oh, I noticed something new because like I've been on the lookout because I have the profile. Like it's so it's not something that you would ever pick up just watching like a few episodes. But then you're just like, wow, they really (laughs) uh, don't try to incorporate this moment more than just like it's it's the expositional like uh, (laughs) crux of the show. And that has, has been greatly amusing to me. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And there's, it's also funny to see the, the kinds of limits. Uh, one thing that I've enjoyed about, because I have a compulsive love of procedural things and a fierce <laughs> and ever-growing anti-criminal uh, justice system abolitionist framework is is watching them for how they are thinking about when they encounter their own limits and it's not like they ever are like oh my god i shouldn't exist but they (laughs) they do a lot of them do have moments where a it's like they do the thing they solve the thing but like that doesn't help some, I mean, when they save people, that's when it's like, okay, you did a thing that's good. The other thing is like the worldview. It's like they'll have an episode where, like, oh, they had an episode. This is what it was. They had an episode that was about drone warfare. And it's about this guy who was a, a operated a drone for the, for a military contractor for the US Army. And like, basically realizes kind of after he leaves the true toll. Um, and, and there actually was, I think it's partially based on the, the school bombing that happened. Um, yeah, there were several episodes of different TV shows. I feel like around that time that all had that basic trajectory yeah. to them. Yeah. And so then the guy basically has a psychological break and then starts killing the people who he was part of the drone team with, with a, with a drone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, it's like this whole thing where it's like the corruption goes all the way to the top where they're like, Oh, the military contract company like knew about the like casualties and didn't say anything. But then like at the end of the episode, they're like, thankfully the U S government and the BAU figured it out. And now that's settled and we won't do anything with the military contractor ever again. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) I think you missed missed the spot. (laughs) It's like, everything goes almost all the way to the top. (laughs) Everything. Even if it goes all the way to the top, the system's not broken. Yep. Yeah. Cause you just got to get somebody different in the top and then it's fine. That's true. Oh, I forgot the best part of the show. Oh my God. The show is very, it's not a good show. Okay. It's, it's it doesn't try to be a good show. <laughs> I mean, that's part of what's so good about it. Exactly. But most of those shows, it's like, okay, law and order, you're doing your thing. That's what this show is doing. But then there's, they read a quote at the beginning and the end of every episode and it is bananas because it's just like 
One never knows the lies from the truth. Soren Kierkegaard. And then, <laughs> and then it's like that somehow ties into the psycho killers, <laughs> like, like psychology and like what his anguish is. And it's like the disjunction is, <laughs> is hysterical. I mean, it's so occasionally they are like, that's amazing decent, but it's just like it's perfect it's 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 a it's it come one comes in the beginning gets you ready and then one closes you out it's uh it's that's a little a, that's hilarious it's perfect every episode <laughs> <laughs> i'm telling you soren kierkegaard made an appearance twice Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time.